All right. Well, Michael, uh, just absolutely thrilled to be back for Be Seen Season 2. And uh, congratulations. Uh, we just were at the Milwaukee Press Club Awards Dinner and excited to announce an award. Yes. What a true honor to be recognized by the Milwaukee Press Club for journalistic excellence and audio reporting. I mean, that is really, <laughs> that's really a, a crown jewel in my opinion. We started this podcast as kind of a crazy idea, a crazy conversation between us and some of these legendary voices of Milwaukee's LGBTQ past and Wisconsin's LGBTQ heritage. And look how far it's come in just one year. It's really quite incredible. I was personally just touched and honored that we were named one of NPR's podcast to listen to last summer. We were right on the NPR uh, new and notable section, which was a really cool honor. So to win an award on top of that locally has really been kind of over the moon. So thank you to everyone who listened and shared the podcast with their circles. Your advocacy means a lot. And I think that, you know, we're living in precarious times in terms of LGBT history, being available, accessible and seen in the world. So the more we can do to educate people and share these amazing stories and celebrate this remarkable past is really essential right now. Yeah. Looking back at season one, I'm, I'm just really proud of the stories that we told and how deep we went. And I think on the second season, we're going to go even deeper and look at different, I guess, different types of stories. We're going to have those profiles of individuals. We're going to look at longstanding traditions. We're going to look at how the pandemic affected some of those traditions and how they continued on even after that disruption. We're also going to, you know, of course, address themes of acceptance and of belonging, which we hit in season one. But I think in this season, we're going to go a little bit more personal and hear directly from folks that really had to fight for equality and to be seen. Absolutely. The stories that we will hear this season really bring the name of our podcast into light and really demonstrate why we selected this name and this theme and this mission and purpose, if you will. There are a lot of people we'll be talking to who couldn't be seen in their lifetimes or who went to great extremes to always be seen at great risk and peril to themselves and the people around them because they believed in a better world. And now they're living in that better world. And to hear their perspectives on, you know, 40, 50, 60 years of change is really, really quite powerful. And there's a lot of joy in this season, too. We're going to take you to the Milwaukee Pride Parade. We're going to go down to the softball diamond and hear from the Saturday Softball League, which is a really longstanding Milwaukee tradition. Also, later this season, um, the Pride Ride, which is uh, another Milwaukee-specific tradition, plus individuals like Donna Burkett, who um, was among the first couple to seek a, a marriage in Milwaukee County. The first story. couple. One thing that really touched me about this season is the exploration of traditions and the traditions that make up heritage. And when we talk about LGBTQ heritage, we have to remember there was a time when LGBTQ people had no heritage. They had no community. They had no way of finding each other or knowing each other. Many of them thinking they were the only person in the world like themselves because that is what the world told them in hospitals, in schools, in churches, in their families. So to think about all of these brilliant traditions that were built out over time, many of which have prevailed over incredible challenges, uh, financial, organizational, social, even legal in some case, to come into the 21st century and face their greatest foe, which is literally just the changing times. And the fact that the world has changed to the point where the tradition still matters tremendously but is not quite as essential because people have these other spaces to connect in and these other 
circles to run in that they don't only need their LGBTQ community, but they have choices and they have options and they're not limited to that community. I got to say, I was just like really personally struck when we were talking to the more senior interviewees this season who reflected back on their lives and all the, the personal sacrifice that, that they had to endure. I could sense they, I guess, hoped that their work would have gotten us farther, you know, or we would have been farther along as a society based on their work. You know, in some of the conversations, it's like we were starting to get there. And then just recently, these like dramatic steps backward that feel like decades at a time were going back in history. Yeah, you really have to wonder how it feels to have started going to gay bars and finding your tribe and connecting with your culture during the Kennedy administration and to see the rise of civil rights and equality and all of these other battles for the community only to watch this backslide in just, you know, the past year even. I can't even imagine what that would feel like to think that the war was over only to realize the war never really ended. Let's start here with our first episode with Bobby Rivers. I I read this story on the Wisconsin LGBTQ History Project website, Michael, that you wrote, and I was really intrigued. I was like, no way, somebody from Milwaukee that, you know, I don't know if is quite, maybe is, is known as maybe he deserves to be in Milwaukee. When I read just like how far this, this man's career went after starting in Milwaukee, to hear that this guy like had a VH1 show in the 80s, it was very curious to learn more. It's true. There was a point in Milwaukee history where Bobby Rivers was on par with Bo Black and Dick Bacon. I mean, he was eponymous with Milwaukee. He was everywhere. He was on TV. He was at live events. He was a telethon host. He was a parade marshal. I mean, anywhere news was happening, anywhere you would go in the city, Bobby Rivers would be there. Early in my career there, I did an interview with Jack Lemmon, the actor. And during the interview, he was really impressed with the homework that I did and, and pulled me aside afterwards and, and said, if you're really good at this, and he said, you need to pursue this. And at that time, this was like 1980. So you didn't see a lot of black Latino people doing celebrity interviews like a Dick Cavett or a Merv Griffin on national TV. And we were giving entertainment reporter assignments. So I think that was one of the reasons why he urged me to do it, which I did. And he really carved an amazing trail for himself in the news media all the way up to and including MTV and VH1 in New York City. So it's quite a story of progress. But I think the other thing that's interesting is understanding the challenges he faced as a media personality in Milwaukee at a time when they weren't exactly encouraged to be out, but they weren't really encouraged not to be. And a single misstep could get you off the air. And that would be the end of your career. And at the same time, his reflections on progress in Milwaukee, uh, racial progress, civil progress, social progress over the past 40 years since he left the city. So I think that that is really the remarkable story there is not only his career path and all of the amazing things he accomplished, but his reflections on the city then and now as a place for African-American people. I'm still grateful to PM Magazine, especially those that crew uh, at WISN, because it it really helped me get started. And then I left WISN to go to New York. 
Well, our next episode is the Milwaukee Pride Parade, which the current incarnation of the Milwaukee Pride Parade is coming up on its 20th anniversary. Uh, it was a little tricky to calculate because they had to take a couple years off with the pandemic, of course. So calendar wise, coming up on 20 years. And if you've uh, ever been to the Milwaukee Pride Parade, you know, you know what a celebration it is. It's different from most other parades as far as gay parades. We just want to be out there and have fun and we don't limit as to what these entries do. They can do what they want. We're PG. We're within legal limits. Sometimes I've wondered, but as a rule we are, but. And I think one of the things I'm most excited about is that the Pride Parade episode primarily features our B-scene poster child, Chucky Betts, who was the first ever gay person to appear on the front page of the Milwaukee Journal identified as part of a gay pride event. And this was in September of 1971. I'm going to show you this. You were kind of the inspiration uh, for our BC podcast. In fact, I have I'm the cover boy. You are the cover boy. Yeah, I I have it on my computer. Yeah. Do you recognize this moment? Oh, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Tell me about this look. This is something. You got like like foot long eyelashes. Oh yeah, I have big time uh, peacock eyelashes and the earrings were plastic discs. They were like a foot long and a green jumpsuit made out of old curtain material, bought at Dretzka's in Kare. And what else? Oh, what a great story. So we're talking just mere months after Stonewall, just barely a year. And he was kind of notorious in Milwaukee for kind of bending the rules of gender expression and identity at a time when it was still seen as illegal to do so. And he wound up founding not one, not two, but three gay rights organizations in Milwaukee, some of which were extremely prominent, both locally and nationally. Yeah, what I think is so interesting about that, too, is is just how different those pride parades were and are. I mean, that, that first one was a protest. I think what is also really inspiring is that that very first pride parade, as it was known, even though it was not organized as a pride parade, was actually a parade spot in someone else's parade. It was Vietnam veterans against the war who were protesting on Labor Day in 1971, and they offered a space for one car to represent gay pride. And as the story goes, the car broke down, they had to push it, but Chucky played his part to the end as the so-called hood ornament, and he was heavily ornamented. And he is actually on all of our promos and ads and social posts for Be Seen. Um, So anywhere you see the Be Seen poster, you're looking at Chucky Betts as he debuted on September 6, 1971, all over... Metro Milwaukee on the front page of the newspaper. And we had such a special moment with Chucky. We got to go, you know, to his home and hang out in his in his patio. There were like bird feeders out and we were just sitting watching the birds and hanging out with Chucky Betts. And what I thought was really fun was that photo that you're referencing, the cover photo for Be Seen is actually framed on the wall there in, in his home. And we got a really cool like side by side. Being out there and I used to wear a whip around my neck. Tied me up my back with a big cape and walk around like that all the time. So it wasn't, it was just outraging people. You know, this podcast is called Be Seen. It sounds like that was kind of your. Always. <laughs> always Be Seen. Sounds like that was, has been your whole life. Mm-hmm. 
Cool. So we also have another personal story, a personal profile. And this one was really a landmark case. It received widespread media attention. And it was all centered around a couple in Milwaukee, the first lesbian couple to seek a marriage. And we went down to City Hall to take out a marriage license. That was the first step. I remember that. We fill out the little application thing, and then uh, they told us uh, they was at a desk, and they told us uh, that we couldn't marry because we were both females. Then they told us to leave out this door, just a side door. They and when we got out in the hallway of the courthouse, you know, then all these photographers and all the papers and stuff was there, you know, kind of like, what is going on here? And it is a really incredible story because despite being denied and despite facing tremendous pressure from families and from school and from employers and really from the media and the wider community, these two women chased their dream and did wind up getting married with or without a marriage license they believed to be married. And it was really kind of a spectacle. I mean, it was reported on the front page of GPU News, which was the LGBTQ local publication of the time. And it was as if I was reading, you know, (laughs) the New York Times bridal section, reading this description of the ceremony and the reception and literally all of the media coverage that followed. It really was quite the event in 1971, And it seems like that was quite a magical year for LGBTQ people in Milwaukee. And we've got some original audio, an interview that was recorded with UW-Milwaukee Libraries in 2007. We've got that audio and it shows you, I mean, just how personal this was and what this meant, not only for her, but for Milwaukee. After, see, after we went public with our faces, Mm -hmm. you know, at first... The whole city was just didn't know who we were. Uh-huh. It just know, like two females tried to marry. That's all like the headlines in the paper would say. Then they would show a silhouette or the back pose. Nobody knew who we were. We did that for a few weeks, you know. But we did go through with the commitment ceremony, uh, and that was Christmas Day. Well, our next episode is about uh, this. This is another really long running tradition. And sadly, this one was pretty definitively ended by the pandemic. Uh, This episode's all about the old timers party. And that's the name they gave it themselves. Uh, But let's talk about what let's talk about the old timers party. So the old timers party is probably one of Milwaukee's best kept secrets. It was something that ran for nearly 45 years. And every year got bigger and bigger and bigger. And attracted women and their partners from all over Wisconsin and Northern Illinois, and even as far away as other Great Lakes states. And on one Saturday afternoon of the year, these women, whether they went to bars anymore, whether they were connected to the community anymore, whether or not they were retired or, you know, in college, they all came together from all over the region and had one heck of a party. (laughs) I mean, The last one I attended had nearly 400 women at it, and it filled Hot Water Warehouse inside and out, upstairs and downstairs, and spilling out into the the parkway. And it was just so remarkable to see this women-only space on that scale where everyone was getting along, everyone was having an amazing time, and everyone was just so glad to be together. 
And some of those people hadn't seen each other since the last party or maybe the year before, or maybe they hadn't come in seven years, but they knew that there would always be this old timers party to see those people that didn't stay in touch, didn't go out, don't use Facebook. And it's kind of sad to think that that is gone. It's the old timers party. I knocked all the prices down to a buck 50. Everything in the house was a buck 50. I ran out of so much beer, I ended up going to the liquor store, which I know is totally illegal, but catch me now, okay? Um, (laughs) I think I went to the liquor store like three times just to get cases upon cases of beer. I ran out of everything. They ran out of everything, we had told them. (laughs) Prior to that, these women women drink, and um, they didn't really believe us, so they... Uh, they found out in a hurry because they had to make a, a booze run, you know. But, so you um, showed them, huh? Yeah, we sure did. It makes me think of the M&M Club reunion that we attended last year on episode two. And just how special those reunion moments are where people who, you know, don't really go out to the bars anymore um, for lots of different reasons get to see each other again. And it's been a year and they're catching up and it just feels more special than just a big party or a night out at the bar. This is really a special event. And it really was. And I'm not kidding when I said it was invite only. There was a safely guarded, protected and curated contact list that grew and shrank depending on the year and was in the hands of one and only one person. Even the party operators did not have access to the list. Only the person who sent out the communications had access because it was so sensitive and confidential and not to be shared with anyone at all outside the party, even including the party participants themselves. So you never really knew who you would see, but uh, chances are you would know somebody in the room, right? Because it brought together people that, I mean, spanning generations. And for this episode, we talked to really the, the top brass of the old timers party, Mary Connell, Lois Ratso, and Carol Pecor. Yeah, it's a very colorful group of characters and they all have some very Strong opinions and colorful memories, and I look forward to revisiting them. On to our next episode, which is actually, I was surprised to know how long this has been going on in Milwaukee. The 46th anniversary of SSBL. So SSBL stands for Saturday Softball Beer League. I know B stands for beer in SSBL, right? (laughs) Well, we had to take that off when we filed our 501c3 paperwork. Okay. Um, That was taken off of the application. Saturday Softball League. And 46 years, Michael. It is really incredible how long SSBL has flourished in Milwaukee. And it's one of those traditions that seems unstoppable and seems to be gaining traction more and more each year. And when you consider that baseball has been played in Milwaukee since 1859, Perhaps it's not surprising to know that this league is rapidly approaching its 50th anniversary as a social outlet for LGBT people in Milwaukee. And although the league was founded uh, as a bar-based, drinking-based organization, it has really changed with society over the years. And it's really become an alternative in some ways for some people, for the bar scene entirely. They can still make friends. They can still connect with their community. They can still be recreational and get out of the house and do something. Um, but it is not centered in a drinking culture, which is is really interesting for a league that literally had beer in its name. Yeah, we were there at, at 10 a.m. on a Saturday, and it was uh, early in the season. I think it was actually their first uh, game day after getting rained out. And they always kind of expect to rain out those first uh, week or two of spring. But yeah, it, it wasn't, I, you know, there were you know, people had a couple coolers and there were some people picnicking, but it, it wasn't like a beer centered thing. It wasn't a drinking centered thing. It was definitely a softball thing. 
And we talked to teams from This Is It, Harbor Room, Dicks, Fluid, Woody's. It's not just gay bars either. There's like individual businesses and even non-gay businesses that participate as uh, as allies. Um, I mean, I played a lot as a kid and I played Little League as a kid, but uh, just got back into rec softball with SSBL 25 years ago. So, Well, you've been here for 25 years. Why, yep. why is it important that this keeps going for another 25? What, what need does this go um, We had a... Uh, like a dinner thing in November for the end of season. And uh, same thought occurred to me there, especially with everything going online and digital and people doing a lot more of their connections remotely. Uh, I feel like it's, you know, more important than ever to hold on to the things that actually do get people out in person and sort of bonding with each other. You know, there's, you can't replace it. And uh, you can't, you can't slap hands and hug like this uh, on a text. So. And it really is quite the operation. Listening to the commissioner and former operators talk, it really, <laughs> it has really grown into something pretty remarkable. And when you think back of all the people who participated in this over the years, I mean, it's it's quite an all star cast. You know, something also that we heard a lot about was the the gay softball uh, World Series that Milwaukee has hosted over the years, uh, as recently as two thousand nine. Isn't that amazing to think that number one there is. A World Series, but second of all, that the Milwaukee market captured it. <laughs> That's really quite amazing. I mean, that was a long, hard battle to get that. And I think that they've done great things. Well, we close out the series with uh, this story is really a challenging story to tell. It's an emotional story to tell, uh, an important story to tell, but also heartbreaking and, and difficult to talk about. We're talking about an unsolved murder from 1967 a man by the name of James Jimmy Spencer. And this one did break my heart as someone who spent a lot of time researching alongside and for the family as they were trying to come to closure with what had happened to their loved one in 1967. And as we drive into the city or out of the city and we see the U.S. Bank building, formerly long ago, the first Wisconsin building, we don't really think anything of it. But for this family, that building is a historic marker of the place where their loved one was brutally murdered and an unsolved mystery and a cold case that remains unsolved 55 years later. Okay, hi, my name is Carla Mitchell. I am, my uncle is Jimmy Spencer. Um, well, at the time he passed, I was 60, I was six years old, but I just remember him being the fun uncle. Um, he grew up with a single mom and he chose to do the Air Force or Army right after high school. And um, he was just a loving uncle, always taking us kids to the park and spending time with us. And we heard directly from family members, um, Carla Mitchell, the niece of, of Jimmy Spencer. And we also heard from Steve Schaefer, who you worked with, with the Wisconsin Historical Society. I'm the archivist at the Milwaukee County Historical Society. And uh, in the episode, we revisit some of those original case files and some of those original reports. Yeah, Steve was the one who brought it to the attention of the History Project, asking if there were any additional resources that he had not already connected them to. And that's when I got involved and really wanted to share this story more widely. And he had moved out of Green Bay area. She knew that he had to move because he was gay, but they never knew what happened to him in Milwaukee. They, they know that, that he died, but there was no talk in the family about what happened or any of his experiences. So um, I did a search. We have coroner's reports 
uh, from the 1960s, and his name came up, and um, that's that's when we were able to determine that he had been, you know, in fact, brutally murdered um, in a downtown uh, hotel, and that kind of kicked the whole thing off. That was complete news to her. She had no idea uh, that that was the case. Um, and there were a few other cases that we uh, we pulled, um, but but that the coroner's report was the main one that that uh, dealt with the uh, victim, uh, James Spencer. Sadly, many of the people who were alive at that time, active at that time, social at that time, have already left us. The remaining few have very limited memories of 1967. And the tough part now is finding anyone left alive who might know anything about this case. But what we would love is for this podcast to lead to something positive and help this family say goodbye to someone whose life ended way too soon. I think that this episode also demonstrated for me out of all of them this season, the destructive power of homophobia and how concerns about homophobia, concerns about family rejection, concerns about social rejection can put people in situations that maybe they wouldn't have chose if they had alternatives. And I I do think that James Spencer throughout his life was forced into some decisions just based on social pressures of the time that may not exist today and may not have guided him the way they did in 1967. Why was it so important to you to to tell this story? This is certainly not the only case like this in Milwaukee. There's other cold cases. Of course, Milwaukee is is so well known for Jeffrey Dahmer and you know his horrific crimes and the victims' families that were shattered. And still today, I mean, we we see anti-trans violence on the rise. Um, this is certainly not a relic of the past. No, it absolutely is not. The part of the story that I hope is in the past or fleeting into the past is the bias that was shown in investigating this crime. There was next to no investigation of a violent murder, a murder that took place with no theft, with no break-in, with no evidence of even a struggle beyond, of course, the murder itself. I think what's most disturbing about that investigation is that reason to believe that some of those case files have gone missing. And actually the FBI looked into this case as well. And a lot of those records have been lost. You raise a really important point about this case. And when I say there were discrepancies in the investigation, I mean discrepancies you could drive a semi-truck through. One of them that is very curious is the involvement of the FBI in a local murder in 1967. This just doesn't seem or feel normal. But what is certainly abnormal is that the FBI took samples Uh, very elaborate and detailed and complex biological samples from the body. And we have tried to find out what happened to those as there's no record other than the coroner's report of them ever being taken. Of course, one of the big reasons why we're talking about this case today and including it in the season is, is we hope that, you know, the more discussion and the more attention we can give this case, perhaps it'll lead to some further investigation or somebody out there who is still in Milwaukee who might know something. I will leave it to you to decide how in the world this could possibly have ever been a cold case, much less stayed one for almost six decades. You have to remember that LGBT history as a separate discipline and course of study 
has only really existed for maybe the last 30 years. And prior to that, people were first told they had no history, and then second, didn't really recognize what they were doing would one day be history. So we are quite proud to have this opportunity to educate people and give them new sources of pride for Milwaukee, for Wisconsin, and for themselves. Well, we can't wait to bring you Be Seen Season 2 from the Wisconsin LGBTQ History Project and Radio Milwaukee. We've got our first episode coming out on May 30th, so perfect timing, just in time for Pride Month, kicking things off with Bobby Rivers. If you're listening right now on the podcast feed and you're already subscribed to Season 1, these episodes will just appear in your feed, so make sure you're watching and uh, subscribed. If you're new to the feed, make sure you're you're there and subscribed with us. We'd love to have you along for the journey here for Be Seen Season 2. Also, definitely check out Be Seen Season 1, which, uh, as we mentioned, just received that great recognition from the Milwaukee Press Club. Super grateful for that and for, as you said, the community, most of all, that came together and supported this podcast in the first season and allows us to bring you a second season. Another reason to get excited about season two of Be Seen is it's a bit of a prelude to next year um, and what will be the 30th anniversary of the Wisconsin LGBTQ History Project, which will come with not only city, county, and state historic markers being installed permanently for the first time in Milwaukee, but also a brand new History Project website that will be much more interactive, immersive, and educational, coming at a very critical time in, I think, our state's history. Well, from Radio Milwaukee, we are uh, just thrilled to partner with the Wisconsin LGBTQ History Project and to contribute this podcast to the archive and to the new website uh, for hopefully generations to come. So, Michael, thank you so much. We are definitely looking forward to a second season, and we'll be back on May 30th with our first episode. Amazing. Thank you, everyone.